0: So, if you've not been at Vintage uh, for the last uh, six weeks, we are actually in the middle, like literally, we just kind of crossed over the hump into the second part of our study of Ephesians. Uh, we've been looking at James, excuse me, Been looking at the book, the Letter of James, the past six weeks, and uh I encourage you, if you have not been here, you can go back and listen to the podcast. I, I'm hoping uh, that those of you are in small groups and diving into this have really enjoyed it. Uh, it's been a really, really powerful time. And one of the things that I feel like I've really, it's really stuck with me in this, and I talked about this last week a little bit. It's kind of James talking in the moment, and he basically, in my, in, in my thought, in my opinion, he's really coming and attacking uh, the level of hypocrisy that could have been found in the church, right? I don't know if you know this or not, but there are people who have not come to Jesus because of people who claim to be Christians but don't act like it, right? They claim it with their words, right? They say, yeah, I'm a believer, but then their uh, their words and then their actions never actually connect up with what they say They believe. And so James is coming in the moment and basically saying, hey, it's going to be really, really important that, that your words and your actions, that they all line up. That they all line up. He really is coming in the moment and attacking the possibility and the probability of hypocrisy that's happening in the church that's spread out outside of Jerusalem in the early part of the church. And he's really coming and attacking that. And so in our time today, We're going to be looking at James building off from last week. So last week we said teachers and people of influence, they have to be careful with their tongues, right? They have to be careful with the words that come out of their mouth because your words have the power to build up. But we also said last week that your words have the power to tear down and literally keep God's will from happening in people's lives. Like the tongue is a powerful instrument that we can use, we said, for praise, we can use for cursing, for building up and for tearing down, right? And so we must, we said last week, we must submit ourselves to God. Like we must surrender to Him, we must allow Him to heal our wounded areas, because we said this, wounded people wound people, right? People who usually wound with their words are people who have been wounded by their words. And so God wants to bring healing. He wants to bring restoration. And he wants us to use our words to produce life. I'm hoping literally in our small group this week that people could attest. It was so funny. We watched ourselves and what we were literally saying in our small group, during our small group, and after our small group. It was really, really funny, right? We were kind of like, now listen, are you blessing or are you cursing, right? Is this whole funny dynamic of literally being super aware, and I actually walked away from that small group going, that's really how it should be every day of our life, (laughs) right? We really should be watching our words and the way that we relate to people. And so this week, kind of building off of that, James is going to be speaking again to people of influence, teachers, and saying you must exercise godly wisdom in every relationship. If not then we are expressing an earthly and a destructive wisdom. So he's saying, for those of you of people of influence, those of you who are teachers, you must exercise godly wisdom in the context of a relationship and not use ungodly wisdom. We're going to look at both of those this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to James chapter 3, reading verses 13 through 18. It says this, you can follow along on the screen. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such quote unquote wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition... There you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So this morning we're going to be looking, we're breaking these uh, these verses down into three sections. It's super simple, super straightforward. We're going to look at verse 13 where godly wisdom is the goal of Christ's followers. We're looking at the goal that James has for you, all right? James's goal for you with wisdom. Then we're going to define earthly wisdom and then we're going to define godly wisdom. So, the goal, verse 13, the goal, what we're aspiring to, what James ultimately place this as a goal for every single one of us who call ourselves Christians. The first part of the goal, there's three parts to this. The first goal is to recognize that you are a teacher. Recognize that you, everybody say, I am a teacher. Now, here's the idea. It's important we connect the verse, to the preceding verses, because James is kind of saying, all right, we've been talking about those of you who have influenced those of you who were teachers. I want you to recognize I'm still talking to you. Right. Because the word wise needs to be seen in two specific ways in Scripture. First, it is a technical term. It's a technical term. So when they said the wise, it literally was a synonym for someone who was a teacher, Someone who had influence in other people's lives. Therefore, James is beginning by saying, and directly speaking, hey, for those of you who are aspiring to teach, or those of you who have an audience, you are a teacher. I want you to see this, right? Last week, we talked about this in a broad sense, recognizing that all of us, at any time, can have an audience of one, or twenty, or a hundred, or a thousand People that we want to share advice with, people that we want to direct, people that we want to teach, therefore each of us is a teacher in some form or fashion. Like I want you to think back to this week. How many, you know what they're like, say it out loud, but just think about your week. How many times did you give advice to someone? How many times did someone seek you out? Right to get your opinion on something, and so in that moment, right, whether it was your child, whether it was a coworker, whether it was someone, even your boss or someone in your home or outside, one of your neighbors, like someone came to ask for advice about something about life, or so, we can think about in the past month, each of us, if we were to put our hand and say, yeah, all of us, probably the majority of us in this room, in some form or fashion, had someone who was an audience. Of ours that we were giving advice to, sharing an opinion with, coming alongside and trying to teach something in the moment. And so it's important to recognize, yes, there are those who teach as a calling, but each of us have an audience, people that we are advising and teaching in some form or fashion. Therefore, we can apply this verse to all of ourselves so in this, we have to recognize the goal. We have to recognize our influence of advising and teaching. And secondly, in this, we have to, to see the word wise has an action, has an action that we aspire to, which leads to the second part of James's goal. It's an action part. It's this to be wise and understanding. So when James comes, uses the word wise and understanding. One, it's to talk about those who have influence. But two, it's to talk about an action that we are to put into motion. The phrase wise and understanding is a specific way of life that we express, again, in action. So wisdom, this is defined. Wisdom speaks to the practical application of acquired knowledge. Can you put that up for me, Will? Wisdom speaks to the practical application of acquired knowledge. So the idea is just really, really simple. I know something I should do, so I apply it and I do it. Right. Like I have a I have a knowledge of how am i supposed to function, what I'm supposed to do, and then I know how to put it into motion and I put it into motion. It's an incredibly important word in scripture. And honestly, if we look at it, celebrated in first Kings three as the most important trait that Solomon could pursue. Do you remember in first Kings three, God comes and says, hey, I'll give you anything that you want. What do you want? And I don't know about you, but there's lots of things that come to mind that I would want. Lots of things that come to mind. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Oh no. There's so many things, Jesus. Right. But he comes very quickly and says, I want Wisdom. I don't want just the knowledge of things. I want to understand the application. I want to be able to take what I know put it into motion. right? I want to be able to take other people when there's things they're struggling with and have knowledge of how to go after it and then help them to put it into motion. There's this idea of wisdom. Again, practical application of acquired knowledge. It's super important. It speaks to a person who takes what they know to be true. This is what hypocrites don't do. They take what they know to be true and they put it into action. Therefore, wisdom is about our behavior and our conduct, doing, knowing what we should do and then putting it into action. Summed up, James is telling them once more, as ones who have influence in every situation of life, how it is important or how important it is to live out their faith, both in knowledge and in action. So it's important to recognize, again, all of us are teachers, all of us are people of influence, and in that influence, we need to be wise and understanding, knowing what to do than actually doing it. And then the third part of this is we need to, third part of the goal of James is to embrace meekness. Now, the word that he uses here is humility. He says he says the idea is, let them show their good life by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Now, it's really important to recognize humility. There's different words in the Greek for humility, right? And so some of them are like preferring others above self. But this one actually has in mind gentleness of our lives, specifically known as meekness. Specifically, that is meekness. We are, and it's the third part of our goal, to embrace meekness. Now, meekness is a unique and misunderstood word in our culture. We normally associate this word... With weakness. And we all understand weakness as in not having the power to do something that we want to do. Right. So if I put a large rock, if you put a large rock in front of me and say, Steve, I want you to move this. And I say, I, I, my, I have weaknesses. I'm not able to, I don't have the power to take this rock, pick it up and to, to move it. Right. But meekness is not that. Meekness is not the lack of power. Meekness is defined this way, and it will be on the screen. Meekness refers to a power someone contains, but they restrain that power for redemptive purposes or for the purpose of salvation for other people. Meekness. So I have the power, so I would have the power to move this rock. But in moving this rock, it's going to negatively impact someone else. So I refrain from picking up the rock that I have the power to move, to leave it there so this person may be saved. That's the idea of meekness. I'm restraining, I'm holding back my power and my ability for the purpose of helping out someone else. The most clear, the clearest picture, the ultimate expression of this in scripture was Jesus, right? So you know Jesus, he contained unlimited power in every relationship, in every situation right? He had the power during his whole experience leading up to the cross and then the cross itself to stop it from happening he had the power to do this but he said in the moment I choose to restrain, I choose meekness I restrain my power so God's will could occur for salvation for someone else My selfish ambition, my personal desire is not to suffer and to not die. I could keep that from happening in my own power, but I choose meekness. I restrain my ability so that others can be saved and God's will could occur. And so James is coming in the moment and he's saying, you're all people of influence. Influencing more than you realize, both in your words and in your action. So it's imperative that you were a wise and understanding, taking what you know to be true and then actually doing it and expressing it in a level of meekness where you're not doing the things you're doing for self, but so that others may be saved, just as Jesus did. This is the goal. He's looking at those who could be living in hypocrisy saying, wake up. Wake up. I have a goal for you to attain. Your teachers with influence. In this I want you to be wise and understanding and I want you to embrace a level of meekness. And he says, now... Let's let's press pause on that goal and let's talk about what the alternative looks like. Let's begin by looking at worldly wisdom because I want you to find yourself in it because every single one of us will struggle will struggle with worldly wisdom. We will struggle in this tension. So James in this in verse 14 through 15 he contrasts the life of meekness with the life of power exerted for selfish ambition. Just listen as I read these verses again. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from God, but it's not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, it's demonic. For where you have selfish ambition and envy, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So he comes in this moment and says, all right, let's talk about this worldly wisdom. In these verses, there were believers who found pride and this combination of selfish ambition and bitter envy and believed it was wisdom or that it was God's best. You're like, doesn't make any sense. How could this be the case? Well, this combination Don't you hear these words? These, These descriptors are really important to begin to understand this combination of selfish ambition and zeal. He says this combination is speaking about a fanatical zeal for a cause. So a fanatic, you know, someone who at all costs they stand holding their flag because this is what's true and this is what is right. A fanatical zeal for a cause or an unhealthy partisanship to Two groups of people living on two opposite sides, finding no middle ground of connection, right? An unhealthy partisanship that created an unhealthy rivalry. In fact, one study Bible says this combination, it is a divisive willingness to split the group in order to achieve personal power and prestige. It is translated by Paul, the word that he uses is rivalry. And it's interesting, like, Scripture's silent on the actual tension and what the rivalry is. Like, we don't really know exactly what James is pointing to in the context of his wisdom. But if we were to do just a little bit of, you know, deductive reasoning, one of the primary tensions where you had opposing camps, and I'm not sure this is exactly what it was, but it fits the moment and James would have been experiencing it, we would have found these two camps In the early church, who were Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Jewish Christians said, hey, the only way you can truly be a Christ follower and take the path into true Christianity is by being circumcised, staying true to the law, right, as well as following Jesus. And the Gentile Christians said, "Ah, we're not going to get circumcised because that doesn't sound awesome. Amen. Can I get an amen? Right. We're we're not going to follow all the 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 calendar things that you do and all the the legalistic nature of things. We're not going to do that. And the Jewish Christians, they were called Judaizers, said, then you're not real Christians. We will not interact with you. Remember, Peter, excuse me, Paul rebuked Peter because when the Judaizers came to hang out, With Gentile Christians, they wouldn't eat with them because they consider it to be unholy. All I'm getting at is in the context of the church, you had two camps of people who both thought they were better Christians than the other. Do you know any churches like that in America today? So, in this, Jesus comes, like Jesus comes and says, Listen, that's not wisdom. That's not wisdom. One of the clearest pictures in all of Scripture of Jesus countering this hyper-religious spirit, this partisanship was the Jews who, in reading their law... Said it's best for us to stone a woman who's been caught in adultery, then try to come alongside, help her and bring salvation in her life. And so in their reading of the law, they said, hey, we've caught this woman. We're going to bring her before Jesus to see what Jesus does. And so in their carrying their flag of holiness and righteousness and perfection, they said, here's a woman. What should we do, Jesus? We know what the law says. We should stone her as we stand as in a, a place of being better than worldly wisdom. And what does Jesus do? He just starts drawing on the ground. Because that's what you do in an argument. He just starts drawing And everyone's going, what is he drawing? What's he doing? I don't know. But hold on to your rock. Hold on to your rock. Don't let it down. But why is he drawing? I have no idea. He's doodling. I don't know. I don't know. He's sitting there. And this poor woman's just sitting over there, afraid to look up. And Jesus, breaking down the wall of partisanship, this selfish ambition, selfish zeal for my perfection, my perfect belief says, Hey, he who is without sin, why don't you cast the first stone? Do you see what he did? And then it says, and then he said later, super important, because he hey, it's not okay what you did. I'm not condoning your sin. I'm not. You, it's not okay. You need to go and stop doing this. You need to go and sin no more. He had the same biblical conviction of adultery as this group over here, but he tore down the walls of hostility because he loved the woman and he showed a better way. I'm going to knock down walls. And I'm going to relate to you because I believe that you are worthy of being saved. Jesus shows them. It's the way of wisdom. He exercised meekness. He res- listened. He restrained his power to convict and to judge, to express love and an offer of forgiveness with a command to sin no more. The idea here in James believing, listen, listen, believing the right thing is imperative, but expressing it to others in the right way is just as imperative. You can be right, but express it wrongly and be in the wrong. You can be right, but express it wrongly and be in the wrong. Let me give you two examples. You can probably identify with both of them. So I graduated from University of Georgia, and every semester, the Tate preachers would come to the free speech area at the Tate Student Center, and they would get up on stage, and they would begin to preach the message of salvation—that all of us are sinners—and then he would look around to every single person, and say, "You slut and you whore," right? And he would call them "you fornicator." I mean, all those Bible words we never use in public, right? They're just throwing them out there for everyone to hear. And people would get angry, and people would be shamed, right? I never forget—I got up there one time, and said, do you, "Do you do you mind if I speak?" They're like, ah, oh, okay, right? And so I got, I got up. And I just began to say, yes, we're all sinners, but God died for you. He loves you. He wants to draw you in. And then they called me the spawn of Satan. It was hilarious. And so I punched them in the face. And so, no, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, ah, oh, right? I was heartbroken in the moment. And I'll never forget, literally, one of my good friends, James Michael, like one day, he tried to talk to them. And they started walking off. And they, started, and they started walking off and they started to run away. And he, they were older than he was. And he was pretty athletic, so he chased them down, right? All the way up the top of the hill, literally. And said, stop, I'm not here to beat you up or to ridicule you. I want to take you to lunch, Tate preachers. They said, oh, okay. And so he sat down and said, tell me the message you're trying to preach. You know what the message was? The good news of Jesus. It was the right story. It was the right message, but spoken so wrongly. And he looked at him and goes, how many people have been saved in your ministry in the last five years? Well, zero. He says, because your message is right and the way you're doing it is wrong. He challenged them. Listen, it's about tearing down these walls and relating. Jesus literally left the Pharisees and his self-righteous disciples, went into Matthew's house to eat with tax collectors and sinners because he wanted to tear down the wall of hostility and to relate to them because they were worthy of being loved and worthy of being saved. He didn't tell them what they were doing was okay. He didn't say, yeah, Matthew, keep stealing. Keep stealing from your brothers. That's awesome. He doesn't look to the prostitutes and say, yes, that's really good for your body. Keep on doing it, right? He doesn't do that. He comes in, what's right is right, but he comes in and he loves them in the process. But one of the things that, listen, as I was studying, one of the things that kept on coming up again and again and again in the nature of a lack of meekness in our world is the partisan nature of our political landscape. Like, I don't know if you know this or not, but we have two polar opposite ends of the spectrum in our political party who don't like one another. I'm sure this is news to you. And here's the deal. In both of them speaking... They never say anything positive about the other, even though both sides have positive things to be said about them. And all they ever do is say negative things to tear the other person down to what? Make themselves look right for their own personal selfish ambition because their platform in their mind is the only platform. One of the theologians I read said this about this whole partisan nature. He says, during the political race, a politician who brings up everything that he can to convey a bad impression in the minds of others about his rival and now has succeeded in victory and glories in his win, such behavior is unthinkable to the wise Christian. If a man claims he is wise and acts in this manner described by James, he is surely not living up to his profession of faith, nor is he wise." Randall said there's this thing called the and campaign. It's on Instagram. The and campaign. It's basically these people who are looking at socioeconomic issues and the bipartisan nature of who we're supposed to be called to be as a, as a nation and beginning to have honest conversations from a Christ centered way around these issues so that we can actually bridge the wall, this bridge the divide of hostility that is, listen, there is responsibility on both sides. Like you all know, Jesus is not a Republican. And Jesus is not a Democrat. Jesus is over all of that. and says, my kingdom. Seek first my kingdom. And all these things shall be added. We come into this place and recognize... Jesus, James here is combating the way human beings pick sides on political issues, on business issues, and specifically here religious issues in this scenario because they stopped engaging the ones that God loves. They stopped engaging, they stopped listening, stopped loving, Trying to stop. they stopped trying to bring and pursue breakthrough, all in the name of their own biblical conviction, their political conviction. James wants them to be honest and realize, hear this, your conviction is more of a selfish conviction. You believe you were right and you want to prove yourself right by proving everyone else wrong and by saying they're wrong, you create a division, that's partisanship, and James is saying it is unwise. It means so much to say in this. But I want to read this definition. Will, if you can pull it up on worldly wisdom. Any conviction we hold, any, like, flag we raise, any platform we stand on that keeps us from loving the people whom God loves and died for is worldly wisdom. It's worldly wisdom. You know what it causes us to be? In every landscape where we practice it, hypocrites, living unwise, ungodly. And Jesus and James says it's actually demonic., Ugh. it's powerful, isn't it? It's hard. But then James comes up, "Let me show you the way of meekness, the way of wisdom. And he gives a list. I don't know about you, but I love lists. Because you can look at them and they're super practical and they make sense. And so he says, hey, let me show you the way of wisdom. Let me show you the way of wisdom, godly wisdom, how it's defined as you live a life of wisdom and understanding and the expression of meekness. So he's going to give a list here, and this list is going to describe godly wisdom, right? It's going to talk about what it's of being wise and understanding and what a life of meekness looks like. So let's pull it up on the screen. I think I saved it it there. Okay, go ahead and pull it up for me. Here we go. So traits of wisdom and meekness. Number one, it's pure. Number two, it's peace loving. Number three, it's considerate. Number four, it's submissive. Number 5, it's in partial number 6, it's in seer. So let leave, we're going to leave that up there. I want you to see this, this idea of being pure. What James is saying, like, listen, Christ followers who live in this place of godly wisdom, then they will have a source, their, their source of their actions will be pure. Like, you will be living with Jesus and your godly wisdom will allow just your source to be pure. Fresh water will flow from a fresh spring. Fresh water will flow from a fresh water springs. It speaks to the absence of a sinful attitude or a very personal, selfish motive, right? It speaks to our actions, again, being about the royal law. Everything we do is about the royal law of loving God and loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. It speaks to our motivation in life, being about loving people, not promoting self, or our own selfish convictions. Like he's saying... I want you to embrace purity. Why do you do the things that you do? Why are you nice to some people and not as nice to others? It's because you want something from them so you're nice with selfish ambition? Do you kind of suck up to somebody over here at work because you want them to like you so you can get something from them? He's saying, no, no, get a pure source and just be equally nice to everybody. Love all your neighbors as yourself. Right? It's not self-permitting. It's pure. All my actions are pure in nature. coming from a pure source. Second thing is peace-loving. Listen, godly wisdom doesn't create competition, but it inspires and aspires to unity. When we act, it causes those who are at odds, those who are separated, to want to come together. It knocks down walls of hostility between people. In situations of tension, do you pick sides? Or do you try to produce peace? Do you naturally pick up other people's defense and hop on board with them, Or do you work to help try to bring unity? Because the spirit of unity is what's demanded for us to be a church that actually makes a difference. We're considerate. We're considerate. I love this word in Scripture. It usually speaks to God's disposition as a king. That's how the word's primarily used. Considerate, speaking about God and his disposition, what he portrays to people as king. In it, we know he has the right to be stern. He has the right to discipline those in sin. But instead, he is kind and compassionate. He's showing the leniency of love. The leniency of love—it's connected to His patience. Have you ever read the Old Testament? Have you ever read how people, the people of God, continue to fall back into sin, and then for generation after generation after generation after generation, He would be considerate by being lenient, by not judging them for their sin in law and patience, long suffering in one direction in hope of someone being saved. Do you thank God every day how considerate he is with you and the boneheaded decisions that we make? He's like, oh, my gosh, thank you for being considerate and recognizing my frailty as a human being. I am such an idiot, but you're considerate and you give me long space so that I can be saved from that. Do you give that to people in your life? Are you considerate? Patient, long suffering in one direction with someone who shouldn't be where they are because you just want them to be saved. Next, it's submissive. Number four, submissive. This is the quality directly opposed to self seeking. It submits to others and is ready to yield. It doesn't mean we submit to sin or submit to things that are against our conviction, but it does mean in relationship we are looking for ways to bend so that we can maintain and express love. I am not demanding to be heard in this, but I'm submitted to listening. Listening. Full of mercy speaks to not giving people what they deserve, but instead giving them what they need. In this, I am being submissive, saying I, I, I don't agree, but I'm going to yield in this moment. I'm not going to push back and fight. I'm not going to push back and fight just to fight to make my point heard. I want to listen so we can have a dialogue. Do you find yourselves getting in an argument, like a discussion with someone that leads to an argument and you both have to walk away from it. And he's saying, no, you're submissive. You're actually listening to the point you understand them for the purpose of relationship and look at them and say, I love you. And I will agree to 100% disagree because I believe this, but I am for you as a human being whom God loves. I mean, to be honest with you, when I think of this, I always think of Grandparents. Right, like kids come up to parents, and what do parents say? No, right? But grandma's like, okay, <laughs> right? Okay, you want to go to McDonald's, great. You want to go to the playground, great. You want to get a couple toys, great. Right? I'm gonna play in the street. No, we're not gonna do that. But I love you. I wish I could let you play in the street. Right? Like, there's a boundary in this, but there's a submissiveness coming. To I want to yield for the purpose of engaging relationship. The next one is impartial. Like, we're not going to spend time here because impartial speaks back to the last couple of weeks of James not discriminating or showing favoritism. Do you have favorites? That's not godly. God, we're all God's favorites. People who don't know Jesus are God's favorite. He loves them with everything so much that when he died, he thought of them sincere. It's from the heart. It's not an act to get something in return. My act of loving is not so I can manipulate to get something, but it's sincere. I'm just giving you this gift because I want to give you the gift. I'm not getting, listen, I never give a gift to someone so that they can get saved, right? Because that's not sincere. Sincerity is I give you a gift because I love you not with a string attached to salvation. It's God's job to save. It's our job to love. If I create an agenda for someone to get them saved, and that's my goal, then I've missed Jesus. My goal is to save anybody. My goal is to love people, and he saves them. When you come up to anybody and someone says, are you just trying to get me saved? I can honestly say no. I'm just trying to love you, and I'll see what Jesus does with everything else. It's not an agenda of someone that I'm trying to make something happen for. I just, with sincerity, want them to love, want to love them because they're my neighbor, because they're worthy of being loved, because they're worthy of being died for by Jesus, and they're worthy of being loved by me. And So it's sincere. In all of this, we are to be peacemakers. Rather than promoting disorder, we are to fight for peace. Rather than embracing partisanship or fighting for unity, rather than inflaming rivalry, we show mercy, which is the fruit of God's spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I express to people love, joy, peace. I'm going to read that again. The people I don't naturally feel drawn to, that I live kind of separated from, I express love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Is that what we express? That's what it looks like to be godly and wise. To be wise and understanding and to live a life of meekness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time Lord, as our worship team comes back up here, God, just to dive into our baptisms this morning, I I pray, Jesus, I pray, Jesus, that you would flow in power. I pray, Father, that you would move and speak life. And so, Holy Spirit, come and, and have your way this morning. In Jesus' name.